big question in our field right now is who out there is invested? And I don't mean emotionally or psychologically invested. I mean, invested on a practical level. Who is invested in people continuing to enter the field? Because people are starting to not enter the field because it's very difficult to enter the field. It is also very difficult to keep the channels open for people to enter the field. It is difficult to have an acupuncture school. So I agree if we want to see more people entering the acupuncture profession, we are going to have to change some things. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation for practitioners of the art so that we can better help our patients. I was recently at a podcast conference. I like to use a conference as an oracle, take a few problems or questions, hold them with a loose hand, and see what shows up in conversations, chance meetings, seminars, or even stray bits of conversation as people walk by. But sometimes it's not the things I'm looking for that have the most impact. Sometimes it's telling a story and having someone point out the elusive obvious. Without attempting to instigate any kind of change, they say something that rearranges the watertight storyline of who I think I am. And in doing so, opens up breathing room for something previously unseen and has ever so patiently been awaiting my attention. Geological was not my first podcast. Prior to firing up the microphone for the conversations that you get here on a weekly basis, I used to do a show called Everyday Acupuncture. Conversationally similar to Geological, but it was aimed at educating the general public, perhaps planting a seed that would then have them one day walk into an acupuncturist office. About six months into everyday acupuncture, I started getting emails from practitioners telling me how much they liked it, and this was very confusing for me. It was confusing because I didn't make the show for practitioners. Everyday acupuncture was aimed at the general public. In my mind, I'm thinking, This is simple stuff, basics, something that anyone would have learned while they'd been in acupuncture school. But the emails trickled in on a regular enough basis, and that, well, as you well know, if you're listening to this, that is what sparked the idea to point the conversations on medicine toward practitioners. And I'm glad I did. It's been a delight to host these conversations. I'm continually impressed with how people take the basic principles that we all share and distill out so many different ways to help people. But back to that tight-knit story that ever so gently unraveled the other night. I was talking with some other attendees, and of course, people share their podcast origin story. And when I expressed my still deeply rooted confusion on why practitioners would listen to everyday acupuncture, the woman across from me looked me dead in the eye and said, well, of course they loved it. You were able to take something complex and talk about it in a simple way. 
I bet that the people in your trade have a hard time explaining acupuncture to your patients. And you know, she was right. I know she was right because of the feeling like that of being on a gently rocking boat. I know that feeling and it's trustworthy. I'd not considered that perspective. I didn't think, and I don't think I'm alone in how my internal dialogue does not leave much breathing room for other opinions. But in this moment, there was some spaciousness, not unlike when you take a deep breath after realizing that you'd been holding it. And what's more, she was right. It's one thing to learn ancient medicine and quite something else to be able to make ourselves understood in the lingo of our times. The internal dialogue is relentless in its ongoing, unending description of the world. And yet, as we get in the first two lines of the Tao Te Ching, Tao Ke Tao, Fei Chang Tao, Ming Ke Ming, Fei Chang Ming, the true Tao is that which cannot be spoken of. The name you call something is not the entirety of what is named. It's the parts of our being and experience that have not been coded into story or words. It's all the spaces in between the storyline that are waiting to have the light of consciousness show their character. And you don't get to it by aiming at it. It comes to you. The storyline of our lives gives us structure, purpose, and a map to chart our days. Often enough, a map with well-worn grooves. It can be a challenge to see beyond the filters of habit and expectation. In a moment, we're going to join Lisa Rolliger and discuss acupuncture education and where our profession might be heading. But before that, I've got something new for you. Recently, I invited you geological listeners to share with me what you would like to hear more of here on the podcast. And a number of y'all said, give us more nuts and bolts clinical material. Teach us how points work together, how to specifically treat certain conditions. Maybe a nice long campfire story about a point or some case studies that show how to successfully navigate a treatment. I'm delighted to tell you that I'm adding a new section to the podcast. It's called Shop Talk, and you can expect roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical advice that has its work boots on. But first, a word from the folks that you should be grateful towards because they make it possible for Geological to land in your podcast feed. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. 
do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Lisa Rolliger doesn't really need an introduction. You've likely heard of her, and if you haven't, then you are at least familiar with the community acupuncture model, which kind of goes in the opposite direction of a modern insurance-based medical clinic in that people are not whispering the troubles of their health confessional style to a doctor in a bright white overlit room, but rather are coming together in a community setting and healing together. Lisa has a passion for the change that she wants to see in the world. And because the older I get, 
the less I feel like a doctor and actually more like a tradesman. I wanted to talk with Lisa about the POCA model of education that graduates practitioners capable of being licensed, but without the headwind of a six-figure debt. It gets a little lively here. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation, and I'd love to have your thoughts about the current state of education in our profession. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hi there, Michelle Grassick here, acupuncturist and founder of Acupuncture Marketing School. Today, we're going to cover four important steps to make your email marketing more effective, plus three major barriers that prevent most of us from sending email newsletters regularly to our subscribers. These barriers are concern that you're annoying your subscribers when you email them, not knowing what the heck to write about, and not having enough time to write email content regularly. Before we dive into the nitty gritty, why do I recommend email marketing so strongly? Email is an incredibly effective marketing strategy and it's very cost effective. Research shows that for every dollar you spend on email marketing, the average return is $38. That's a 3,800% return on your investment. Let's compare this to social media. For every dollar you spend on social media, research shows the return is an average of $1.28. So that's positive. It's 128% return on your investment. But clearly, email marketing is more cost effective. It's a phenomenal, low cost opportunity to get in front of your audience, teach them how much acupuncture can help them, and remind them to make an appointment. Let's dig into these four steps to make your email marketing more effective, and we will talk about each of these in more detail. One, send emails consistently, ideally twice a month. Now, don't panic. We will discuss this in a moment. Two, keep your emails short and simple. Three, include a strong call to action. And four, repurpose content to make writing emails much less work. Consistency is really essential in any kind of marketing, and email is no different. I recommend sending two emails a month. I know the idea of two emails a month can be intimidating, not just writing that much content, but also the potential fear that you'll be annoying your audience by emailing more than you're used to. So let's discuss both of those concerns. I find that the traditional once monthly email newsletter is not enough for people to remember their intention to make an appointment with you. You have to email people often enough to stay top of mind. That's a huge part of what we're doing each time we email, staying top of mind with our subscribers. So ideally, what happens when your email lands in the inbox of your ideal patient. They open it, they read through it, they understand how acupuncture can help them, and they respond to your call to action by clicking on the link to make an appointment. But 
what actually happens in reality is that a lot of times people get distracted. We know this is true because we all do this with our own emails that we receive on a regular basis. We read an email, we say, yes, I want this, I'm going to make an appointment, or I want to buy this thing. But then we get distracted by the millions of other things going on on the internet, and we end up watching videos of golden retrievers wearing sweaters on YouTube for 15 minutes. And we totally forget about our intention to make that appointment or do whatever it was that the email talked about. And then the kicker, a lot of acupuncturists don't email their subscribers again for a month or maybe even three or four months. And that's actually very common. That is a long time. Even one month is plenty of time for someone to forget that they meant to do something, especially without any reminders in that time frame. So I find that sending two emails a month is really a sweet spot for us as practitioners in terms of writing the email content and for our subscribers. Think about your favorite clothing store, for example. When they're having a sale, they'll email you three, maybe even four times a day. We are not doing that. Two emails a month in comparison to the volume of other emails your subscribers are getting is minimal. It's a polite number of emails to send compared to the barrage of emails that they're getting from other companies. But if you're consistent, it's also just often enough to remind them, I did want to make that appointment and then actually do it. If you're still worried that you're annoying people with your emails or anxious about increasing the frequency of emails, remember, people signed up to your email list for a reason, because they're interested in what you have to teach them and they want to hear from you. They're waiting to hear from you. So you're just popping into their inbox to remind them that one, acupuncture can help them and B, your practice exists conveniently in their community. For maximum effectiveness, you've got to keep popping into their inbox regularly to stay top of mind. So don't give up. You are not annoying people. This is the kind of thing that, like a lot of marketing, picks up speed and effectiveness the longer you do it. The more people get used to seeing you in their inbox and learning from you, getting to know you by the way that you write, the way that you teach and approach this medicine the better. It's very trust building and it's only going to become more effective with consistency. And something else that I have to add is that every time you send an email, people will unsubscribe. This is normal. So expect it in advance and don't take it personally. It does not mean that you're annoying people. Every professional digital marketer out there knows that each time they send an email, some people are going to choose to leave. This isn't a bad thing because it probably just means they weren't going to become your patients anyway. If they don't stick around, they're not your people. Let them go. It's totally normal. But please don't let fear of unsubscribers deter you from sending emails. At this point, most people's next questions are, how will I find time for writing that much content? And what am I supposed to write about twice a month? So the answers are, in a nutshell, Keep your emails short and simple and repurpose content that you've already written. Let's start with keeping your email simple. You only need one message to share 
in order to send your email newsletter. For many acupuncturists, when we think about email newsletters, we think about the kind of newsletter that's a collection of three or four related articles. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Each section introduces a new blog post or a new article, and there's often a theme that unites all of the articles, although there doesn't have to be. There's nothing wrong with this format. It works fine, but it is a lot of work. And I know that many acupuncturists feel intimidated by having to regularly write a complex, multi-part email newsletter like this. And it often present, prevents people from sending their email newsletters at all because it takes so much time and effort every month. So they send nothing. This is super common. And I agree. I also felt this way, which is why I stopped writing this kind of newsletter a long time ago. Luckily, the truth is that while there's nothing wrong with this format, it's also simply not necessary. You only need one message or one piece of information to share with your audience to have a reason to send the email. If you take nothing else away from this discussion, I want to remove the blocks that are keeping you from sending emails. I just want you to send them and get in front of your audience. At the start of my practice, almost 12 years ago, I had a fabulous marketing mentor named Deb. And there was one time where I was really dragging my feet on sending my email newsletter. And she gave me a little kick in the pants by reminding me that Email marketing only works if you send it. Ouch. It's better to hit send on a short, simple email that maybe feels imperfect than to never send anything. So what do I mean by just one message or just one piece of information to share with your subscribers? Here are some examples. These could each be brief, two-paragraph emails. One, share a research article that you found on acupuncture for a specific condition that you love treating. For example, knee pain. Summarize the study in layman's terms in a few sentences. Take a moment to describe the symptoms your ideal patient is experiencing and how this is impacting or limiting their life so that it's relating the study back to their personal experience and then include a call to action telling them to make an appointment. Example number two, answer a frequently asked question such as how many treatments do I need for X, for fertility or carpal tunnel or cosmetic acupuncture and include your call to action. Number three, share a blog post that you wrote, whether you wrote it recently or a long time ago, it doesn't matter. Summarize the blog post briefly in your email and include a link so people can click through and read the entire thing in depth if they want. Don't forget to connect the content of the blog post to their experience and how you can help them and then include your call to action to make an appointment. And four, introduce a new staff member or announce a sale or invite people to an event, etc. and include your call to action. You can see that each email is short, including just one topic, making a connection between the topic, the patient's experience, how acupuncture can help them, and then a call to action. So I would argue that only including one topic per email helps prevent your message and your call to action from getting watered down. It really helps your audience focus and take an action instead of getting distracted. 
And I mentioned earlier that one important step in effective email marketing is including a strong call to action. So what does that mean? A call to action is when you tell your audience what you want them to do and how to do it. For example, if you're ready to try acupuncture for your chronic knee pain, click here to schedule now. It's essential to include this because otherwise people are reading your emails for educational purposes and then doing nothing. A call to action is required for marketing to be truly effective and not a waste of your time. You have to tell people what to do next. Literally answer the question, what's the next step if they're ready to work with you? This is not being pushy. By being clear and concise, you are actually making their life easier. In the digital world, people expect to be told what to do, what next step to take. They do not like having to click around and search for something or figure it out on their own. We all know this from experience. That is irritating and time-consuming, and you risk losing their attention quickly. So a simple Strong call to action, such as click here to make an appointment today, is very important in every email to make your marketing effective. Okay, let's talk about what to write in your emails twice a month. Where do you come up with that content? The answer is repurposing content. It makes your email marketing so much less work. Repurposing content is when you take something that you wrote or created for one platform And you copy and paste it and make some minor tweaks so that it makes sense for a different platform. For example, let's say you wrote an Instagram post about how many treatments are needed for fertility and why. You could copy the caption from your Instagram post into your email provider and make a few tweaks so that it makes sense as an email. So in this case, you would get rid of your hashtags, of course, and change your call to action. Instead of saying, click the link in my bio, which is a really common call to action on Instagram, you would say, click here or click the button below to schedule now in your email. Repurposing is also excellent because repetition is necessary for marketing to be effective. It's okay for the same people to see the same message from you across multiple platforms. It's reinforcing and trust building because your message is consistent. So this is where I recommend starting. Go through anything you've already written, blog posts, Instagram or Facebook posts, even copy on your website where you're answering frequently asked questions, or parts of your website where you talk about your specialty and simply copy, paste, and edit that text as emails. And I bet you'll have at least a year's worth of email content right there. Another important way you can repurpose content is to simply resend emails that you've sent in the past. Trust me when I say that people will not remember that you sent a nearly identical email a year ago. I highly recommend doing this to reduce your total workload. So I hope this has been helpful and encourages you to get serious about email marketing. I think it will really be worth your effort. To review, keep these four steps in mind. Send emails consistently. Keep your emails short and simple. Always include a call to action and repurpose content to make it as easy as possible. 
If you still feel intimidated by the idea of writing two emails a month, I have a group of 26 email templates for sale that you can use instead of writing them from scratch. These are real emails that I send to my patients about acupuncture for pain, anxiety, digestion, and other topics. You simply copy and paste, make a couple edits to match your clinic, and hit send. For Chiological listeners, I'm offering a discount code for $30 off. The code is Chiological30, one word, and there'll be a link in the show notes if you'd like to take a look at the email templates. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Of course, if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email. I'm always happy to chat with you. Michelle at michellegrassic.com. Lisa Rowletter, welcome to Geological. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am so happy to have you here. I just have to say this because I'm a little bit starstruck at the moment. You're kind of, oh my God. Because you're kind of a luminary in the field, right? And you're a luminary, at least in my opinion, because you have done the medicine in a way that matches with who you are. You've shared that with others. And you have shown our community that there's different ways to think about doing acupuncture. You stand very solidly in the place where you are, highly unapologetically, doing your thing. And that's admirable. Thank you. That's very kind. And so I've invited you here today because I would love to have a conversation like how we as acupuncturists and how our profession fits into the medical and economic landscape of our present moment, right? I think it's really important. Yeah. And again, you've been looking at that economic factor for a long, long time. And you also have a school, Pokatech, which is really unusual because, how do I say this? And I mean this in the best possible way, okay? I look at Pokatech and I go, that's cool. And it's cool because it's not like a graduate school. It's like a trade school. I think there's a place, this could make me very unpopular, (laughs) but I'm going to go out on a limb. (laughs) Here we go. I think there might be a place for that. I've been listening to a podcast lately. A friend of mine turned me on to it called a guy named Mike Rowe. Do you know who Mike Rowe is? I should, I'm sure. Okay. Check out Mike Rowe because I think you guys are cousins. Okay. (laughs) All right. Mike Rowe is on a TV series called Dirty Jobs. Oh, uh uh-huh. Though I have heard of that. Yep. Okay. And he's all about learning a trade, not going into tons of debt, working hard where you can make a difference Mm -hmm. and living a great life because you got a great trade. And I was listening to him a few months back and I was thinking, oh man, how come we don't have trade schools for acupuncture? And then the second thought was, oh my God, that sounds like a heretical thought. And the next one was, wait a minute, I bet Lisa would have something to say about this. Always happy to talk about the heresy. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's the heresy? Let's just name it. Sure. Well, I think you just did. The idea that acupuncture, that the way we've defined acupuncture in a very specific kind of upper middle class professional managerial context is not the only context in which it can thrive. Mm-hmm. Yes. So partly I want to say, how did we get there? But in some ways, it doesn't matter how we got there because we are there. 
And usually we end up wherever we are because of good reasons along the way. Most great decisions have unintended consequences. Yes, there's different contexts. So I I can speak very personally to this. I have no desire whatsoever to work in an integrated context. I just don't. And it's not because I necessarily think it's bad. It's because I'm not that kind of animal. I just don't thrive in those kinds of situations. And so I've always had my own clinic. I've always had just kind of my own gig. Like I want to do things in my own way. I don't want people telling me what to do. And increasingly, I hear calls to be integrated to get to be part of the medical system. And the thing I find very curious about that is I found more trouble than help in the conventional medical system. I'm not sure why I would want to go back to it. And I'm curious to get your take, because I really see a bifurcation coming right now between going like the doctorate and insurance and integrated contexts. Integrated always worries me a little because I'm always worried about like, well, who's getting to call the shots? Who's at the top saying who's in, who's out, and what you can do within it? So there's that. But as you put it, like the upper class managerial or maybe just middle class managerial versus something else is this like trade that we're talking about. A working class context. Well, a working class context. And I've read your books and I've thought about it. Is it possible to take the idea of the working class context and expand it a bit? I mean, is it possible for someone like me who doesn't have a working class context? I see one or two people at a time but I do it in a very low overhead fashion, right? Because I have no interest in being big. I want to be small. And I want to have a trade. I don't want to be part of a system. So if there are people that are interested in not being part of the medical model, so to speak, like how can we get there? Well, I mean, first, I think you're speaking for a lot of acupuncturists. I mean, I think it kind of defines the breed that most acupuncturists don't want to be told what to do by anybody. Most acupuncturists are very driven by the desire to do their own thing. That's real. And so, and that that can be part of why people struggle economically is that autonomy is more important to them than anything else, which I'm saying with no judgment there. It's just people are often more focused on doing what they want to do than necessarily making money at it, which is certainly true of me too. So, I mean, I do think it's, it's an acupuncturist thing to want to do your own thing, your own way. But I guess I want to even question what the description of integrative. I mean, I think what you're describing is a scenario where when people say integrative, what they mean is, I am going to try to fit into the medical system as it's imagined right now, the same healthcare system that you know, many doctors are deeply unhappy with, many nurses are deeply unhappy with. I mean, the status quo in healthcare doesn't have a lot of cheerleaders, right? Right. Even on the inside. Oh, especially on the inside. It's ironic kind of that acupuncturists think, some acupuncturists think that like there's a lot to be gained by reproducing that system in our world, right? That's kind of what you're talking about. I would say I mean, my clinic, Working Class Acupuncture, and the school, Poca Tech, we have some integrative medicine partnerships that are very, very important to us and that allow us to treat people who we wouldn't ordinarily treat. And I would call them integrative medicine 
and I should probably describe them a little bit, but we are working with sort of normal players in the healthcare system. We're just not trying to be them. And they like us this way. So for example, we have a offsite clinic at a nonprofit called CODA, which is the oldest opioid treatment program in Oregon. And we have a little room there. And that room functions like a community acupuncture clinic when we're there. Like when you walk through the doorway, you're sort of in our world. And our world exists within this larger treatment program in this larger building. And we really love our partner, CODA, and they really love us. It's a great relationship. They use medication-assisted treatment, which can mean methadone. And I always mispronounce the other one, so I won't even try. But basically, medication can really help people get off opioids. And we don't do that. We're not trying to do that. We're not trying to do what CODA is doing. We are supplementing what they offer their clients with acupuncture. And that works great. The other, I think, more mind-bending partnership a little bit is that we have a partnership with Care Oregon, which is functionally Medicaid in Oregon. They're a giant insurance company, Mm. safety net insurance company. We do not bill insurance, but we've had a relationship with them since 2012 where we provide unlimited acupuncture to a bunch of their, their members. And it works great. The details are probably would be boring to people, but the point is they know what we're doing. They know we're not wearing white coats. They've been to our clinics. They know we're not trying to be doctors. We're trying to be community acupuncturists. And that is actually what we can offer. They have been very clear as valuable. They call it low barrier acupuncture. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's integrative medicine. Someone who sees a care Oregon provider for pain chronic pain is very likely to get a referral to us. That's amazing. I had no idea that you guys were doing this. Of course, I've got my own idea of what integration means. And usually it's, well, there's some kind of insurance thing going on and you a provider or you a network out of network, blah, blah, blah. You are working, I'm going to use air quotes here, that integrative side of it in a way, kind of as a partner. As a partner. And I'm going to say some really creative ways, yeah, like a little bit out of the box, but that's not unusual for you to be a little bit out of the box. But they like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's working. And entities that, I mean, obviously, in both these cases, I think what is significant from our perspective is that these are relationships between organizations. And like any relationship, they take work. Mm-hmm. It's not a transactional thing. It's a long-term relationship where both parties had to do a lot of give and take to get. But what works is that our goal is to treat the same people, people who don't have disposable income, who need acupuncture. We really want to do that. And so we are really happy to work with the people who want to see people who don't have a lot of money getting health care. And it is very odd. I will say the Care Oregon relationship is very odd for them. It's very odd for us. And it's also very successful. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. 
The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. So what's odd about it? That we are working with an insurance company, but we don't bill insurance. So there's something about what you are providing and there's something about the relationship that you've created that this insurance company is finding it to be a benefit. Here's something I know about insurance companies. If it helps them keep some money in their pocket, just like all of us, we're happy to do that. So there's something that you're doing that they're looking at and going, hey, this is helping us be profitable. Well, Care Oregon is actually a nonprofit. I mean, they have a lot of money, but they're a safety net provider. Mm -hmm. So they sort of measure their success the way, same way we do, which is how much treatment can we provide to the people who need it? So I don't know what it would look like with a for-profit company. Mm -hmm. We don't have any of those relationships. Okay. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, well, who knows? There, there might be a, a place for that. That helps me understand better what's going on at a very fundamental level. You and, and Care Oregon are, are very, very aligned yeah. in what you're looking to do. So, so there's that. So just to get back to where we started with this, there are different ways to imagine integration. And in fact, for community acupuncture, when we, if you look back at the history of what we call community acupuncture, we date it to 1970 and the occupation of Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx in New York. I would recommend to everyone Rachel Pagonis's book, Acupuncture as Revolution, which really digs into that history. Yeah. And yeah, better than, than I could and I tremendously appreciate her work. And also the documentary Dope is Death is a really great resource. And the podcast Dope is Death. But the point being, like, Using acupuncture the way we use it now actually stems from, I mean, I mean, that's a very interesting way, I think, to imagine integrative medicine as the occupation of a hospital by community activists who wanted to see their community getting better care. Rachel was on the podcast about a year and a half she ago. She was? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. It was wonderful mm -hmm. hearing that bit of grassroots that we sometimes don't think about. That's it. Why is that not integrative medicine? Okay, fair enough. I really appreciate in this conversation, you're expanding my sense of what integrative medicine could be. You know, likewise, I want to pivot back here to reimagining the education. Yeah. Okay. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a teacher anywhere. I don't belong to a school. I went to a school. I learned my acupuncture, but I haven't been involved in any of the schooling. So I don't want to seem like I'm outside throwing rocks at the institution because I'm not in it, mainly because I'm busy with the stuff I've already got. And 
anyway, there's not a school here in St. Louis, Missouri. So, and I don't have the fortitude to go start one. All that being said, I've been at this for about 25 years now, which is starting to make me an old guy. I went through the program and learned my medicine in the mid 90s. It was about 25, 2600,000 K to do that over the course of three ish years. And I managed to work my way through it. Same. I came out of school with no debt. All right. Now, partly again, that's a me problem. I'm anaphylactically allergic to debt. I do not like the dagger of debt hanging over my head. If I can't afford it, I don't buy it. But that's just me. That's the quirky character I am. That being said, I worry about and I hear about younger people all the time and I worry about them coming out of school. They got $100,000 of debt. I need to go breathe into a paper bag when I think about that, right? And it's not even me or someone I know. It's just profession in general. It puts a lot of drag on a person's heart and spirit and work when you have that. And so I want to come back to Mike Rowe again for a moment yeah, because he talks about trade schools, right? Where it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. You go and you learn something useful. And I've had this idea in the back of my head, like, wow, we have the internet these days. You know, there's so much that could be taught that people are sitting in classes, but it could be taught on the internet. You don't need to be in a class. You could be on the internet. You could have a cohort of people on the internet that you work with, right? Much of our education could be delivered not in person. And then, okay, so you figure out the in-person part. Maybe that's more like an apprenticeship thing. I'm thinking, how come we don't have schools like that? And then I find out about Poketech. And so I want to open this up. I've looked at what you're doing. Of course, it's very much with the community acupuncture base. You are true to your roots. But Lisa, I'm wondering, is there a way that we can reimagine the education so people are not coming out with $100,000 in debt? Maybe they don't even live in a city with an acupuncture school, but they could still learn acupuncture. Because let me tell you, my wife would love to have learned acupuncture, but we're in St. Louis, Missouri, and that just ain't happening. I will. So yeah, those are great questions and great things to bring up. Everything you said, yeah, I just want to agree that like the view from outside looks really different from the view inside a school. And I absolutely originated with a rock throwing position from the outside through a lot of rocks at a lot of acupuncture institutions. And that approach has its limits for sure. But on the inside, it is a lot harder to do acupuncture education than it looks from the outside for a variety of reasons. I can only imagine, which is why I'm here talking to you today. Yeah, for a variety of reasons, including just like the regulatory burden on any school, which is, I mean, I'm not going to argue that schools shouldn't be regulated. It's just there's a lot to make work from like the state level licensure of a school through ACOM accreditation. That's a lot. All of that said, is very interesting. People have been saying for a while that why isn't there more distance education for acupuncture? Mm -hmm. And with the pandemic, all of the schools were all doing some degree of distance education. Like we were just all thrown into it. And now I think all of the schools are looking at what parts of that can they keep? What parts can they not keep? And in our world, that had been something we were really interested in as a way to like open up geographic access and save students money. Just we really were excited about that. And we have landed in a place where 75% at least of our education, our program, we realize has to be in person. 
Mm. that actually teaching, and you might want to find out there are other schools that are much more into distance ed than we are. We do have some online modules because absolutely there are things you can deliver online. But in terms of our goals of getting people to the point when they graduate, where they feel very comfortable treating humans of all varieties for all kinds of problems, I personally, I don't see how you can teach that online. And we really very quickly move to insisting that students come to class. It's just very difficult actually to teach people to needle and to interact with people. And there's just a way that I think with all distance education, one of the things you run into is that students are inevitably possibly less engaged. And so then you end up with people enrolled in classes and you don't know if they're learning what you want them to be learning and what they say they want to be learning. It's just a kind of attenuated relationship Mm -hmm. that in our trade school world doesn't really mix well with our goal of making sure our students feel really confident and really competent at treating people when they get out. It sounds like there's also something, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, please let me know, but it sounds like there's something about being together with other people in the moment with someone else in real time, human beings being together. There really is. And that's what we're teaching, right? I mean, acupuncture is a practice between bodies. Acupuncture is a social practice. And I think especially our education, which is very focused on skill building, even more than on theory. I mean, we do deal with theory, but even that, it's just, I don't know. I've taught classes on Zoom. It's difficult. Yeah. So is your model transferable is not the right word. Franchisable is not the right word either. Reproducible. Isn't that the question? I mean, part of what we learned from having an acupuncture school is that the business of acupuncture education is very, very difficult. And I think every school would agree with that. And ours looks difficult in specific ways because we have a tuition cap. I don't know if that was clear from the our materials, but we are committed to keeping the cost of the whole education, if possible, under $25,000. Our tuition is $6,000 a year for three years, and then there's $2,000 in clinic fees. So the part that people pay directly to us for instruction is $18,000. It is very, very difficult to run an institution on that kind of money. Other schools have the same difficulty at different. It's just difficult. It's not like if you want to make money easily, do not start an acupuncture school, no matter what it looks like. And I think, again, that has to do with the levels of regulation. That has to do with what we're teaching. One of the revelations to me was how easy it is for a student clinic to lose money. When we planned to do Pocatech, we assumed the student clinic could break even. It doesn't. I don't know any student clinics that break even. They all lose money in part because students are students. It's hard for them to attract. Like one of the things hopefully people are learning at our school is how to build a patient base. But going into that, they don't know that. 
And so there's a certain specific kind of magic related to acupuncturists attracting patients that students, they don't know how to do it. And that means the student clinics, yeah, all student clinics struggle with patient volume, even ours. And one of the things we do to keep our volume up is we have a couple times a year, we make the student clinic free for a whole month. And even then we struggle with patient. I mean, even then we're, you don't have a line around the block. You just don't. Mm -hmm. So that part is really, really challenging. So the question is, I do think the difficulty is finding anyone who would want to reproduce it, which can I just say, you contacted me because you read the blog post and I feel like the big question in our field right now is who out there is invested? And I don't mean emotionally or psychologically invested. I mean, invested on a practical level. Who is invested in people continuing to enter the field? Because people are starting to not enter the field because it's very difficult to enter the field. It is also very difficult to keep the channels open for people to enter the field. It is difficult to have an acupuncture school. So I agree if we want to see more people entering the acupuncture profession, we are going to have to change some things. Agreed. And here's another thing too. I know different people have thought that I've met and I've talked to some people that have been patients or just, you know, people I know and, and they have some interest in maybe becoming an acupuncturist. And then they look at what it costs to become one. And then they look at, okay, there's not that many JOBs out there. Like really, by and large, are you ready to go it on your own? And some people are happy with that. They're good. Like, fine, I'm happy to do it. But that said, if they want to do something in the medical field and they want to make some money and they want to have some benefits and this and that and the other thing, look, there's a lot of jobs in conventional medicine, less training, less money to get that training, and you'll walk right out into a job making $60,000, dollars a year. I think the reckoning that hasn't happened, and I hope it's going to happen, is that for better or worse, when you are training acupuncturists, you are training people, all signs point to them being self-employed. Even people who point to, sometimes when people talk about jobs in hospitals, what they're really talking about is independent contractor positions. And independent contractor positions are a form of self-employment. And people overlook that all the time. And so I've talked to a number of recent graduates who are $300,000 in debt. There is no scenario in which it is realistic for them to pay that back. There is no hospital job that will make that a good investment. And obviously, there is no small business startup that makes that a good investment. Not in acupuncture. Maybe in tech but not in acupuncture. So the system's really broken. Right. So one of the things that got my attention about that blog post of yours, and, and by the way, all y'all's listening right now, if you haven't read it, Lisa, we can put a copy of that on the show notes page so people have access to it. Your concern was that if we don't change our course, we could maybe run ourselves off a cliff. Am I being too dramatic here? I don't think, well, I am not going to say that you're being too dramatic when in October there was a town hall put on by the American Society of Acupuncturists and the NCCAOM, 
which is our credentialing body in which the executive director of the NCCAOM said, this is close to a direct quote, this is the 40th anniversary of the NCCAOM. There very well might not be a 45th. I would call that dramatic. What are they seeing? I mean, okay, so (laughs) one of my obsessions (laughs) because of the economic stuff is I find organizational infrastructure really interesting, which really makes me a nerd because most people can't even see organizational infrastructure. Like organizations require structure and money and processes in order to exist. They don't drop from the sky. People won't make them. I guess this is because I'm the equivalent of somebody who basically with a bunch of other people, built an acupuncture school in my garage. <laughs> That's what we did. This is a garage built acupuncture school. And so I know how to build one. And I know it's harder than it looks from the outside. And I think that generalizes to things like acupuncture associations, to credentialing bodies, all of these things. They need revenue streams in order to run. The NCCAOM's revenue stream comes from people taking the tests and people being recertified. If not enough people take the test and not enough people become certified because it's no longer a good economic decision to be an acupuncturist on any level, there isn't another entity in the world that's going to say, oh, wow, acupuncture profession, we'll take care of your infrastructure for you. So we would lose our infrastructure is what you're saying. We have to think about what our infrastructure lives on. It's sort of like an ecological thing. Like if you take away everything that allows an ecological niche to exist, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. Well, and much like ecology, even treating patients, right? You don't see the complexity of the system. You can see where there are problems, usually because there's some kind of excess that's showing up. Deficiencies are harder to see. And when things are working well, it's basically invisible. Bingo. And when it starts to go wrong with a system, by the time it's gone wrong enough to see, you're pretty far down the line. Mm. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So we're perhaps coming up to a crisis moment. I think we're here. People go back and forth. I mean, it's now really common for people talking about the acupuncture profession to use the word crisis. Well, good God. I mean, look, fair enough. At this moment, everybody's using the word crisis and everything right now. Right. We're all in crisis mode. But that's also because certain stressors in the world have become clear to the point that people can't pretend they're not there, and especially economic stressors and higher education in general. And there are other fields that are having this problem that people aren't entering them because it doesn't, the economic investments don't pencil out. We're not the only profession with that problem, but just because other people have the problem doesn't mean we don't also really, like no one's going to fix it for us. Right. We have to fix it ourselves for sure. We always have to fix our own problems. Yeah. Now, it's not pleasant contemplating the demise of your profession. No, it's not. Okay. I know that there are other kinds of stressors on our profession as well. So there's, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I just want to name it so we can talk about the ecosystem that we're looking at, right? You got physical therapists that are doing dry needling with immunity everywhere. You've got different 
parts of different professions. I mean, like chiropractors here in the state of Missouri, 100 hours of training, you can be an acupuncturist. You can be a certified acupuncturist. You can't be a licensed acupuncturist like me, but you can be a certified acupuncturist. So there's all kinds of acupuncturists around here that are chiropractors, 100 hours of training. So there's a part of me that's like, hey, that's my profession. That's my thing. Like, keep your damn paws off of it. But here's the thing. Here's how nature works. Ooh, that's a good innovation over there. I want it too. That helps you. I want to do it too. You think we're going to stop that? We are not going to stop that. And look, we're no different either because how many people do a little cranial work with their acupuncture or a little visceral manipulation or something else? Chinese medicine? Well, not really. Does it rhyme with Chinese medicine and play nicely together, maybe even with a synergistic sort of uh, effect? Yes, it does. Do we use that? Yes, we do. So, given that this is reality and that we may not have a organization to help protect us against encroachment, how do we live in that environment? I have a very different take on the perspective of encroachment, and that is, like you, I went to acupuncture school in the 90s. I graduated in 1994, and yes, I feel very old at this moment. You are. I am. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like a dinosaur. And here's what else, Lisa. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Right? You too. Surviving. Well, surviving, experience, time in the boat, love and passion for what we do, not just the work, but the culture of the work. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. But what I wanted to say is the whole time I've been in practice, I mean, except at the very beginning when I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to have a practice, everyone has always said there are too many licensed acupuncturists in Portland. Last I looked, the count was like there were 800 acupuncturists in the Portland metro area. I can't remember how many there were when I started my clinic, but everyone had always said, this will never work. You will never make a living. And I just don't think that's true. Like I really, really, really love small business. And I am really interested in what makes small businesses thrive. And one of the truths about small business is you can't look at what other people are doing. You have to look at what you are doing. And so this business about people taking our medicine, sorry, I call bullshit. That's lazy. If you're serious about building your own business, you'd be delighted that there are out there, other people are out there. I mean, the biggest problem is that people don't have any idea what acupuncture is. There is that. There, it's unfamiliar. And so for everyone who is providing acupuncture in a way that I wouldn't do it, they're making acupuncture visible as an option. And I think that's great. So I'm far at one end of the spectrum. I understand that. But sorry, I can't give the encroachment thing any sympathy because I don't have any. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. 
Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I appreciate hearing that. Early on, I was very worried about encroachment. As time went on, and some of this is just my own persnickety personality, okay? I found myself arguing for, well, those guys shouldn't use it because they're not as well-trained as me. Okay, fine. But if they're getting better results than me, right? then my training means nothing. Right. If my training really has the bones and teeth to it that I think it does, why would I be worried about those guys? They got 100 hours of training. I got three years. Exactly. And if I'm not getting the clinical results, okay, that's on me and I better do something to fix that. Right. And what's that about? That's a whole different question. And I mean, this is a really, the terrible truth is that we're not going to run out of sick people. Yeah. Like tax accountants, acupuncturists, undertakers. I mean, we're in a profession where the stream of potential new people to help is unlimited. And I mean, I lived in Seattle for much of my life, and that's where I've had my practice in the early days before I landed in St. Louis for all kinds of weird reasons. But yes, Seattle had the same sort of thing. It's like, well, there's a bunch of people here, ideally go out of town. And fair enough, there is something about less competition. You can get a practice up sooner, but here's the thing. You'll still get a practice up and going. It'll take you a little longer, perhaps. Here's the other thing about being in a Seattle or San Francisco or Portland. When you say you're an acupuncturist, people go, oh yeah, I got one of those. Exactly. So a lot of people already use it. A lot of people are already informed. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you know, it's so easy to go, hey, there's a pie and that person has a big slice and that means I got a small one. Well, actually you can make a bigger pie. Right. Business, a small business isn't about that. That's right. Small business is about like, wow, I can make pie. I can make pie. I can make pie. Oh, God. Lisa, I love you. I so often, and I say this on the podcast all the time, so y'all that listen regularly, I'm going to say it again, that we have a business. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do. Absolutely. And we can bake our own damn pie. Like, what kind of pie do you want to make? I love your thought about, don't look at what other people are doing. I mean, unless that really lights you up, in which case learn from them. But like, what do you want to do? How do you want to work? Who are you at your core? What do you got to offer? Which goes back to the very first thing you said is that you as an acupuncturist really want to do your own thing your own way. That's kind of what it's about. Well, me as a human being, I'm just that kind of character. Mm -hmm. I've had to drag that attitude around my whole life. That makes you creative. And that's, I think, small business is an incredibly creative, also an incredibly demanding environment. And so I guess I would say, kind of globally getting to what you were talking about a little bit ago, one of the biggest problems I see for the acupuncture field is that we have lost sight that like acupuncture is about small business. And so what kinds of things would make the field more friendly to us being small businesses? Oh, that's a great question. What are your thoughts? 
Well, I think one of them would be to like, obviously stop focusing on chiropractors and physical therapists. And like, those are other businesses, as you said, if you want to learn from them, but like people have a scale problem, I think. And so acupuncturists, when they look at starting a small business, they think, well, I won't be successful because there's a physical therapist doing dry needling. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. Like, yes, in the world, there are physical therapists doing dry needling. The world is also full of people who think acupuncture, all acupuncturists are charlatans. None of that is going to have any bearing on the fact that your job is to figure out how to provide a good service for the people who would want to see you. Like, as you said, you have to figure out what your service is. What are you providing? What does it light you up to provide? What do you want to provide? And because humans are very, very diverse, you will find people who want that exact thing. That makes sense to me. And I know this from my own experience. It's so easy to look out into the world and go, oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's a mess. You know, I don't like that. And it's so much more difficult to look inside and see what's right. That Jung Chi, right? The upright, like what's right and good. That's actually my ballywhack. That's my wheelhouse. That's mine to do. Now, just because you can identify it, that's not an end point. That's the starting point. And as you said, small business is not easy, but it's incredibly rewarding. What you just described to me sounds like a foundational task in small business where you really look at what do I have to offer that's really, really good that I would love to develop and expand on and put out there into the community. And then that's your job, not thinking about who else is doing it wrong. Like you just described what I think of as foundational to the small business mindset. And I think the acupuncture profession doesn't have enough of a small business mindset. Lisa, did you think about small business at all prior to going to acupuncture school? I went to acupuncture school right out of college, pretty much. So I didn't really think about anything. And I learned about small business basically as a result of having, when I didn't know what I was doing and I was floundering around in various ways, one of the beautiful things about Portland is it is a very small business friendly city. And I have always had, I've always been blessed to attract other small business people as both as patients and as friends and as mentors who basically said to me, you can do this. Like they weren't acupuncturists. They were small business people. They're you can do this. Yeah. I'm doing this. It's not that hard. You can do it. And I was like, okay. In some ways, it's better that they weren't acupuncturists. Yeah. Because the basic principles, that's true across the board for businesses. Yes, it is. How that fits in our domain as acupuncturists, okay, we get to work that out. Yep. But the principles, just like Chinese medicine, just like the medicine we practice, there's a core set of principles. Look at all the different ways you can do it. As part of the school, I mean, we've really dug into this. And now a big focus for Poca Tech is basically making sure people understand when they enroll that like they're enrolling, their future is all about small business. And while they're in the school, looking for ways that they can be immersed in small business, including the school itself, as like learning how we run the school, hopefully as much as they can participate in that process, that's transferable to running their practices. The idea that small business is foundational to your ability to practice acupuncture. It's not incidental. Oh, I know what I was going to say. 
as part of one of those classes, I was making a slideshow. And so I thought, wow, I'm going to look up what the definition of small business is. And so I did. And what's the economic cutoff point that defines a small business? What would you say it is? A small business is probably anything under $300,000. Five million. Oh my goodness. So I got room to grow then. (laughs) (laughs) That's the spirit. (laughs) So by that definition, pretty much almost every entity in the acupuncture profession, except the biggest schools, are small businesses. Even the NCCAOM itself is right on the border of that. Wow. Okay. So this is great. So I remember in acupuncture school, we all had the business management class. And I hear you talking about from the get-go, letting your students know, hey, it's not just that you're going to be in business. You're going to be in small business. You're going to be in small business. Now, sometimes there's baggage that goes with the word business. This is partly why small business is helpful. I remember years ago, oh God, this was so funny. It was the election year and blah, 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 and politicians and blah, blah, blah. And you know, one of them was going on about small business is the backbone of America. I'm like, yeah, you bastard, you know, blah, blah, blah. Wait, wait. Oh shit, that's me. Wait a minute. Hmm? That's me. That's the people I buy my coffee from. Yep. That's the guy who fixes my car. Yep. I started looking around, the people that I really love supporting. Like the cool places around town. Oh, look, we're all small businesses. We're businesses, as my grandpa would say. We're a business. It really turned things around for me because I used to think business meant people that cheat. And to turn it around into business means people who care and they make a difference. It's huge. Yeah. And I think just to realize that small business has always been how a lot of people have survived. Like small businesses are built by immigrants. They're built by women. They're built by people with incarceration histories who can't get other jobs. They're built by people in neighborhoods that don't have anything else to offer. They don't have jobs to offer them, so they make businesses. My neighborhood is like that in Portland. And I love this neighborhood because of the other small business people in it. And so I think It is just very rich and very interesting and very human scale to see that. And in fact, if you look at more definitions, most acupuncturists don't even have small businesses. What they have are micro businesses. Mm. One person, no employees, just themselves. That is a very brave way to live. It is a brave way to live, isn't it? Yeah. And a lot of people are living, like I said, I can't say enough about how good it always is for me to hang out with other small business people. One of my new friends who I met as part of being on the board of a local economic development organization for small businesses owns a bar. Mm. And we have so much fun talking about the overlaps between her world and the bar she owns and my world of running a clinic. But all the principles are the same. Wow. Maybe you could open up a uh, acupuncture business school as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's what Pocatech is, actually. Yeah. I mean, because they're not separate. Yeah. Well, it's a business and trade school. Right. So our focus is we want to train people to do the job of providing acupuncture. And the truth that we don't want to paper over or ignore is that in acupuncture, in order to have a job, 
all signs point to you will have to make that job. So I think it's our job to try and help people at least be oriented to that task. You can't tell everyone exactly how to do it, but you can immerse them in a context that says small business is great, small business is necessary. And you're a small business person. And you're a small business person. And this school is a small business. And most other schools are small businesses. Well, I've often heard people say, look, I'm a doctor. I'm not a business person. Hmm. And I take some umbrage with that because I know that I'm both. And I think about the rich tradition of our medicine. Doctors were expected to like be able to write poetry, do calligraphy. You know, There's these different cultivative practices. Why not include business in that? At least in our modern day, part of your cultivative practice. So it's fabulous to hear that you've built that into your program. We feel like one of the things we've learned, I mean, if you make an acupuncture school from scratch, I guarantee you will make a lot of mistakes. We made a ton of mistakes. And now in almost our 10th year, one of the things we're recognizing is that how early you have to have, start having that conversation with people. And we really try and have it in the admissions process. But the very first couple of classes at Poca Tech are about, you know, this is your context. This is a small business. The school is a small business. You're here to learn how to, to see if you like being in a small business. And if you don't, you probably shouldn't go through this program because it's probably not a good use of your money. Right. For sure. I mean, we hear that statistic about how many people are not practicing after five years. I don't know what the number is. It's high. And I don't know what the number is compared to lawyers or accountants or anything else. I mean, I meet a lot of ex-lawyers, let me tell you. But yeah, sometimes I think, and this may sound harsh, but sometimes I think, you know, there are people that maybe went to acupuncture school, wasn't such a good choice. They they should have at the beginning known more about what they were getting into. And, And by the time you're about to get out, you realize what you've the corner you painted yourself into, man, that's a high tuition for a life lesson. And that honestly is part of why we're so stubborn about announcing ourselves as a technical school. I mean, partly it really fits very well with what we're trying to teach and the skills orientation, but we really want to emphasize to people of like, please don't get a credential just to get a credential. I don't think that's a good use of anybody's money. I'm sorry, working class person here. Like the credentials aren't impressive. And don't use Pocatech for that. Like, I mean, it's fine to go to school and realize this isn't for me. But like, if you realize that in your first year, we're kind of like, we don't want to keep taking your money. We don't want to waste your time. Like, it's fine. Yeah, go do something you like. Yeah. We're kind of getting up toward an hour here. Yeah. These conversations go so quickly. I'm a little reluctant to get into a big question. I still want to noodle into this a little bit if you got a moment thinking about how the landscape could change if we didn't have an NCCAOM, thinking about how the landscape would change if, well, but there's no credentialing authority for various reasons, right? Macroeconomic, whatever, like we were discussing and you discuss in your blog post. Let's say we live in that post-credential apocalyptic world. Maybe it's not apocalyptic. I'm just being trying to throw a little humor into it. If we were living in that world, because people still need our services. And how could we go about being helpful? I think that's a beautiful question. I think one of the things, like you said, when infrastructure is working well, it's invisible. Mm. So as it starts to become working less well and hopefully more visible, we can hopefully take you know a thoughtful 
critical eye to it. I mean, the most obvious thing is a bunch of state acupuncture licensing laws are going to have to change because the NCCAOM has written itself into most acupuncture state laws. So if there's no NCCAOM and there's no successor organization, which would be easier, but we don't know what's going to happen. But essentially, the state laws would have to change. But it would be really great if acupuncturists could think about, instead of thinking of our professional organizational infrastructure as something designed to protect us from other people, what if we had infrastructure that helped us run small businesses? I mean, I think your podcast is providing something that people really need, which is perspective, a wider perspective. Like you're reaching out to different people and you're creating channels of communication. I think we need a lot more channels of communication and we're going to need different channels of communication. We could really benefit from having them now, but that maybe channels of communication are more important than fences. When I think about how ecosystems work and when I think about actually just human relationships, when things go south and there's trouble, it's your network of connection Yes, that supports you. It's your network of connection that get each other through it is what happens. Yep. Solidarity, mutual aid, a lot of what we saw during the pandemic. I mean, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the pandemic was that a lot of people, as a result of it, came to appreciate small businesses more than they had and to understand how hard it is to have a small business. And I was like, that's great because, wow, people don't get how difficult this is. And But I think all the things that people worked on to get them through the pandemic, I mean, I feel like what we're looking at with the infrastructure of the acupuncture profession is like, when I think if someone had told me, hey, here's your five-year warning that there's going to be a pandemic, wouldn't that have been helpful? I mean, I feel like that's what we're looking at here. We're getting a five-year warning. Whether people are going to backpedal on this or not, I take it seriously what the head of the NCCAOM said. Here's your five-year warning. Something extremely disruptive could be coming down the pike. Like, wouldn't you want to know that? And wouldn't you want to start doing the work now that could help get people through that. And it would look a lot like what got people through COVID. Well, maybe this conversation that we've had today, and again, thank you for your time and perspective, maybe this conversation can be part of an ongoing conversation where we look at what might be coming, different ways we might respond. And much like different people have different kinds of practices, there's more than one response that might be helpful. That would be necessary. Like, there's not going to be a magic bullet. There's not going to be one solution. There are going to be multiple things that help. Of course, in any networked complex system, it's the only way it works. We should know that from the medicine we practice. So, I mean, if you want a kind of theme for parts of your podcast of like, I don't know, the coming acupocalypse. That might be really interesting. That would be a public service for sure. Because one of the things that has come up a couple of times, people have said to me of like, well, if it's this bad, why aren't people talking about it? And my take on that is that for a lot of people, it would just be political suicide or social suicide to say these things out loud. But it's not for you because you're doing your own thing. 
And it's not for me because I am a known heretic and I can say anything. (laughs) That's who's going to be able to host this conversation. Part of my question all along has been, who can host like the climate change conversation Mm. for the acupuncture world of like, Mm. here it comes. Who can actually be the one who's like, hey, can we like talk about this? Because lots of people have too much invested in the status quo to be able to do that without getting in trouble. So for people like you who are talking to all kinds of people, that's great. And for people like me who I'm already in trouble, I've been in trouble the whole time, I don't have anything to lose and neither do you. I think it's us. I think we're going to be the ones having the conversation. Well, one of the things that I have come to appreciate about Sheological, which I mean, it's weird, you know, I do this podcast, but you know, in some ways it runs me. It's all kinds of inspiration that comes out of these conversations. It's not my podcast. It, you know, I get to help facilitate the podcast. So I love a diversity of points of view. And it's hard to have conversation across the boundaries of difference. It really is. You know, all we got to do is look outside of our world right now and we, we see how hard that is. So I'm up for conversations, all y'all's listening right now what our future might look like and how might we want to navigate in that and what can we do now. And, but it always comes back to this, right, Lisa? Like, what do you want to create today? Like, what kind of life do you want to live? Yep. And what's the circumstances I find myself in? I love what you said about the podcast. And I, this has been true of me and my clinic. And I think of lots of other people with small businesses, small enterprises that very much reflect them as humans. It's like, It has been so difficult and so inconvenient so many times, and I am so grateful I got to do this, as you said. I'm so grateful I got to have this business. Yes. You built it yourself. It's handmade. And for everything it's demanded from me, it's given me way more back. Amen, sister. Right? That's right. I would have to say I've had the same experience. There's been some troubles and travails, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. And thank you. And thank you, right? Yeah. And I think that right there is the perspective we're going to need. And people who are up for navigating something really difficult because it will be worth it. Yes, indeed. Well, let's sit down for another conversation somewhere in the future and see where things are. How's that sound? I think that will be fascinating. <laughs> I look forward to it. I really appreciate Lisa's dedication to the vision that she has. Even as we practice quite differently, I find we had a lot of common ground and a thirst to have our medicine be accessible and independent of the pharmaceutical, insurance, industrial, medical complex, and that we both love the power of small business, which I think is an often overlooked opportunity that we all have. I'm looking forward to circling back again with her at some point in the future to, as my grandpa used to say, talk some business. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. 
Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.